Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, this is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island is a Corkman. He's a talker, nothing unusual there. He's a stand-up comedian, a writer and broadcaster. Lots of you will know him, the first person to monetize the Irish Mammy with his hilarious books about her. It's a pleasure to welcome from Dripsy County Cork, Colm O'Regan. And I don't know a lot about Dripsy, Colm, so, so fill in the missing bits. Yeah, Dripsy is a small village about 13 miles west of Cork City, up the Lee Valley and then up the valley of the River Dripsy. Yeah. And it's a very picturesque place. People used to know it for the woollen mills years ago. There was famously, you know, three woollen mills in Cork. I think it was Douglas Blarney and Dripsy and then two closed. Like a lot of Ireland, mid-80s, things closed. And it kind of pulled itself up by its bootstraps. It's got a big garden centre there. And, you know, through sports, through soccer and GA, it's got it's got a real identity. You know, you know, you go into a village that knows who it is. Yeah, it, uh, yeah it's, it's the kind of place that... A lot of people think they might have heard of, but not necessarily might have been. Yeah, yeah. And did you enjoy growing up there? I did. I grew up on a small farm. It's so funny, like you always look back on rural childhoods thinking, if only I had the time now that I had then to be <laughs> bored, you know, because like yeah. the kind of, you'd grow up, there'd be 10 of you standing at a wall <laughs> with nothing to do. Like one fella would have a fag, like in between. <laughs> it's that kind of, but when you think about the kind of, the idyllic, you know, a river, woods, yeah. an old ruined mill playing soccer in a field, waiting for the silage to be cut so you could play soccer in it. That kind of thing. And that's how. I, that's idyllic to a lot of families. It, it now, is, it? it is. But at the same time, you're like, who's going to bring me? Who's going to bring me to Ballincollig to, to the shop? You know? So I definitely enjoyed lots about it, particularly the, the rhythm of the seasons on a small farm, you know, the planting and the harvesting and all that kind of, you know, the shape of the year. Yeah. But then obviously there's you know, you're kind of stuck inside a lot of the time as well. Did you work on the farm? A bit. Like, it was a small farm and there wasn't a huge amount to work for more than my father. You'd help yeah. out at, like, you're kind of seasonal labour. You help out yeah. at peak periods. We had cows up until 87, so there was a lot more more work in that. I was slight, I was nine then, but my brothers would have done a bit more milking than I did, to say that I actually didn't do any milking. <laughs> but then they all got the, the brucellosis, so then it was dry, so dry cattle, so less less work. But you'd always be helping. Like, I think about some of the jobs I did that nobody would understand, like augering grain. Yeah. An auger, which is a, essentially a drill bit to get grain from a trailer in one part of a yard through one outhouse and into the grain house. Right. Like, I don't think any, I don't know, do people do that now in the same way? Because farms are properly designed, yeah, you know what I mean? Streamlined. You know, picking stones like doesn't. I don't know. Do people pick stones now, or all the kind of harvesting that goes on? Yeah, you kind of look back and think there's a lot of mindfulness <laughs> that, you, that that used to be called boredom and tedium, and now you look back and you go the clarity of thought and singularity of purpose that you had then, where you were in a zone of. Yeah manual labour and you dream for that level of concentration now you know what I mean and did you ever have an intention of staying farming there just wasn't enough work like 
I think it's an it's a it's a widespread on a forty acre farm a widespread small farmers experience that there might be enough for one son if they were interested, but typically most farmers children of that size of farm they went on to work or yeah. get get education and before the free college came in for everybody small farmers used to be able to get in because. Your farm might be worth a bit, but you were making nothing. Yeah. Like it was because you grew your own food, your expenses. Yeah. So you, we all my we all went to college and went our various ways. But like now, if you had forty acres, like the whole you have a village built in. <laughs> but it's I'm glad it's not. I'm glad it's still it's still you know a small farm because they are in some ways they'll be part of the solution. Small holdings, people growing food or yeah. rewilding or looking for corn crakes or whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? As we kind of move on into a different form of countryside. Yeah, and it all changes. Your first, I love the story behind your first musical choice. Yeah, it, the first musical choice is going to uh, be a complete right-hand turn compared to what were the idyllic yeah. from the stuff we're from talking about. Now, yeah. But I used to be huge into rap music and I still am. It's still good, if it's good, like a good hip-hop music. And round about the late 80s, I got into it and I used to love a, a crowd called De La Soul. And this is like in terms of unlikely connections in Deer Park Secondary School, where I went to secondary school. I don't know whether you know it's on Upfriars Walk in Cork. Right. So to be near Ballyfehan and Toker. And one day in first year, Mr. Keenan, the business studies teacher, I think he was just sick of us or bored of us. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I'll give you exercise off if you sing. Like, who's going to go up and sing a song? And one fella sang like what was it been like the early early kind of singer songwritery type stuff yeah. I don't know what I don't know who it was and I for some reason knew the words to one De La Soul song I know and, and but the weird thing was back then if you were trying to sing particularly hip hop or any kind of um, music that was even rock music where you, you there was no lyrics yeah. websites so you were writing down phonetically what you thought they were talking about and you and I had no references so there was references to you know sneaker brands and historical events and other music that I hadn't heard but I was just writing down what I thought they were saying so I was in so many times just mouthing complete gibberish or made up words or words that sounded a little bit like it but I did it four four verses in front of uh, some of the hard chaws in in uh, from Toker. I think you brought the house down, did you? Well, they were just. I've, ne- I've never seen them so stunned because they had me pegged as a farmer. Fa- farmer, yeah. They call well. They'd call me Dripsy sometimes. Um, uh, but I was the only. I was sort of a uh, curiosity. I was the only child from the country in the class. Yeah. So it was all the boys, Ballyfehan, Toker, Fire's Wall. You know the people who went home for their lunch. Like this was a dream for me. The idea of going home for your lunch in school. Like imagine that freedom. Like they'd bring their morning books in, and then they'd bring their after. Where I brought like like the entire library. Bagload. Yeah. yeah. So I got up and stood up and I sang, well, sang, rapped this aged twelve and a bit well, in Deer Park. Well, when you're listening to this now, just just picture that twelve year old. It's it's fantastic. in his confirmation shoes, by the way. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One. That's I Know by Della Soul, the choice of today's guest, comedian Colm O'Regan, talking about Cork. So you went into the city. Yeah. Uh, that was a school bus, was it? Or? School bus, yeah. The McCroom via Coachford bus. I got it at Dripsy Cross and I used to walk down the road uh, half a mile to get the bus. I'd say, well, I'd get up at seven to get in for nine. If the traffic wasn't bad, it would take 40 minutes or so. 
Uh, but sometimes you could be stuck on the straight road in a three kilometre, three mile traffic jam. And But I always had the excuse. I had a bit of cover then to be illegitimately late for school as well, because there was no, nobody was looking on an app traffic yeah, for, yeah, or, you yeah, know, yeah, transport yeah. for Cork to see whether the McCroom coachford bus had arrived into Parnell Place on time. So, like, those were, those were times of lack of connectivity managed to hide an awful lot for your average teenager, which is great. But was it daunting coming into the, the city boys from, from Dripsy? A, a little bit. It, uh, my brothers had been there. What happened was my mother wanted to, my mother loved Latin and wanted her son, her eldest at the time, my brother Michal, who would have started in 1978, to learn Latin. And the only place that was doing Latin that you didn't have to pay for as a school, yeah. the only free school, the Christian Brothers, I think was Deer Park at the time. And uh, so we all went in then, you know, so there's an element of familiarity with maybe where it is. But still, you know, I didn't know my way around Cork City at the time or whatever. But um, it was, do you know what it turned me into was a listener? Because you keep your head down and you listen to speech patterns, slang. Um, Like, for example, a lot of the Cork slang, I since it turns out is traveller slang, you know, like words like Fien and Bjor and Sham and Subla and all that. I thought it was... You know, it's you hear it in Cork and in Limerick, but yeah. it's so funny thinking of myself as a twelve-year-old talking about fiends. You know, but it's learning that new language and learning an accent because my accent's kind of neutral because my mother's from Kilkenny, so I'm sort of I'm not a pure yeah. pure Cork uh, accent or or breed. And the so it's great for I don't know whether it's deterministic that I now am an observer of the human condition listening and because you don't want to get picked on too much yeah. <laughs> but also you're watching you're watching I think as I say I, I tell people that I learned how to tell a joke in the city but how to tell a story in the country there's a different <laughs> pace to it and it's it's kind of like you know when John Giles talks about city street football yeah. and the ability to operate in a tight space yeah, yeah. and to know what to do instinctive and I feel like in in cities, humour can be quite instinctive because you don't get much time. Yeah. There's more people around. You need to be, you need to get your punchline in quick. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, and I think we learn an awful lot at 14. Like 14, they say, is where you pick up the way you talk, like the accent you have is often yeah. determined by who you're hanging around with at 14. Or So it's quite a formative experience. So definitely the observing part of me yeah. or the mimicry or the accents um, was laid down Old. around that time. So I'm very grateful for it, even though it's sort of the lonely times as well, because there was one fellow, other fellow from Dripsy going to school as well too at the time, Daniel, but he left after junior started to go to a closer school. Mm. It, there's, there's an element of like, you don't have the same, people go home, to, they hang out at, yeah. at, at home and you go home to your you sitting room to sit by the, the fire kind of yeah, thing and yeah, watch, yeah. Uh, watch well, telly. But it's, it, it's formative in a way that wasn't in any way upsetting, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but Callum, I think that's intriguing that your mother was into Latin. Yeah. Uh, not that there's anything weird about it, but it was unusual. It's unusual. They're from another type of small farming. Do you know, do you know the, there'd be breeds of small farmer that are fierce educate, like fierce, like, because my grandfather, this will tell you how generations can work in Ireland. My grandfather was born in 1878. My, my father's... The Kilkenny granddad. Uh, yeah, but yeah. he was from Balavorni. He's from the Gwaeltacht. Yeah. And he's a... Um, he was in the Gaelic League. He was a Timura, a travelling teacher. And uh, he was famously arrested in 1905 in either Callan or Castle Comer for illegally graffitiing shop signs in Irish. Yeah. This is when Irish was cool, yeah. like when it was illegal. Yeah. So, so it must have been an amazing time to be studying Irish where it's countercultural or yeah. 
what's the word, subversive. Yeah. That the idea that learning all those tenses and the Tishal Ginnaduk is an act of subversion. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, so, and that's how he met my grandmother. He stopped to fix a puncture for her in 190 whatever. And uh, so that, the le- that kind of learning, you know, the Latin, and they would have yeah. learned Latin and Greek and my mother learned Latin and she taught Irish 60 years ago. And yeah. year, but then uh, came to Dripsy and was then, st- you know, stayed at home because mm-hmm. uh, the ban would have been in then anyway course, for, for yeah. teachers. So, it was a, ma- a mad world, wasn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> one of the things in the book. I'm always fascinated that our idea of our parents and our grandparents is only ever in the frame of reference of when we're alive and we don't see them as young people. Yes. You know, we might see photos, but we don't think of them as being the same, making the same mistakes we are or having their own hopes and dreams and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I always find the little snippets of the past interesting. Like, for example, my my mother and father met in Inchigila and my mother went there looking to meet somebody. You know, there was no kind of uh, consultation or, oh, I don't know, girls, what they do? She went on her own to the, to the dance. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't credit people with yeah. leaps that they took in those, you know, long ago when as we weren't a, around. As a veteran of Ballangiri Irish College, I, see, oh, yes. I know all of this area that yeah. you're talking about and all that. Yeah. Tell the Coulee uh, and, and yeah. um, what's that other I went place there, in the mountains? Yeah. I, I went there with Irish, you see, Dublin oh, yes. Irish. So yeah. I, I was at an advantage. I could yes. swan around and get away with... Yeah, but you came back with a blast, did you? <laughs> I came back yeah. with a lot of things, but no blast. <laughs> <laughs> Your books, this is a, a big extension from or, or different from the Irish Mammies, which is what yeah. you started with. Yeah, the Irish Mammies were sort of three... Like, for me, the, the Irish Mammy character has always been a way of describing Ireland. Like, it's a she is... It's she's a prism and it could be any character. But what you have when you talk about mothers is you have, in a way, access to more parts of Ireland because so often that they're the centre of a community or the types of jobs, you know, like in this case, Anne is a carer. So the amount of the people that she meets, again, gives me as a writer a reason to get at other uh, other parts that are hidden in plain sight. And the Mammy's books were... A way of describing Ireland, humour about Ireland through this thing. And then I wrote... Uh, just um, just before we move on yeah. from them, but your favourite Mammy lines, just for people listening. Well, I suppose I'm, I always have a soft spot for the, the line that surprised me the most that it resonated with people because we always think that our own upbringing is unique and yeah, yeah, mad. Right. And it was just her saying, will you have it in a bowl or with a wafer? And... <laughs> And yeah. first of all, ice cream blocks are still available, but sometimes they've been superseded by swanky Scoopy tubs, things, Scoopy, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah, which yeah, are impossible yeah. to dole out. Yeah. They, like a, a tub is all very well for somebody in a couple or, you know, who only has to worry about themselves That's and their right. own portion. But in in, our, in terms of... Just like, five kids waiting for us. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it took the ancient Greeks a thousand years to measure the volume of a spoon. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but it, it, yeah. everybody knew what a block was uh, for a long time. But so once it had been divided out, then the question is, how are you having it? And what? And the other subtext to it is that Sunday afternoon, which is when, the, you know, the ice cream would be after the Sunday, yeah, yeah. the Sunday fry or whatever people are having, because you wouldn't get ice cream every day. Yeah. But like, it depends on what kind of bit of the newspaper you have. Like, are you able to handle a bowl? Like, can you put a bowl on your, are you sitting down in the couch with the, with the bowl? Are you reading the magazine yeah. bit? Yeah. And it's, it's the tweet that sums up what I loved about writing stuff that seems really simple but connects with people is that surprise where you realise there's shared experience. Yeah. And it's it's nice for the reader to say, oh, oh, he's 
talking about something I know, but it's so nice for the writer to launch something out and then you hear a splash. Like you think it's you think it's a bottomless pit and then you hear some sort of feedback that it's resonating with people. And and as a comedian, normally that's provided by laughter. Yeah. So when you write something and that's why Twitter is it has lots of toxic, bad elements, but it does have that little bit of feedback that says I've connected yeah. with somebody. And uh, so that was one where it's kind of like, oh, I might be onto something here with the tone, with the things I'm talking about. And that can be this platform to just jump out at other stuff yeah, then. Yeah. Well, your second musical choice, Colm Regan, you've ventured further than into yeah. Cork City. Yeah, it's J1 visa time. And there's a, a, a extreme nostalgia with this, not just for me for that time, but for the notion of going as a student to a version of America that seems to be not around anymore. You know, like that, like I always talk about the J1 American dream where the American dream is you work your way up gradually by your bootstraps and yeah. achieve something or the J1 dream is I have a cousin who's going to sort me out. And I got a job in New York uh, through cousin asked somebody who asked somebody who asked somebody as a doorman in a condominium on the Upper East Side and... You had no experience, obviously. No experience. Yeah. So I didn't have to do a whole lot, yeah. but I just had to be vaguely responsible. And you Did think you have to wear a uniform? Well, lucky enough, it was in New York. The further away you get from Central Park, the less horrible oh. the people in the buildings, <laughs> the, the residents yeah. are, because yeah. they're less wealthy. The money is newer. So the yeah. further away you get, the money is newer. Whereas at the park, you're talking about generations of people who have nothing to do, yeah, yeah. like really old money. So working as a doorman there, you have to wear more elaborate like it's kind of like the difference between a private and a general in terms of the amount of gear you have to wear so I got away with just a shirt a shirt white shirt and black tie and black trousers but I watched all these people come in and out and I'd give them their tell them they had mail or bring their dry cleaning up and he had tiny glimpses it's something that eventually I'd love to write about as it kind of percolates but it's do they engage with you the people they did they're all as fascinated with Irish people as well too there's a sense of like our accent gets us more than we ever deserve yeah. over there you know oh, oh I love your voice you know and it's not even the tour to train a tour thing it's just okay we talk too quickly but we we still have turns of phrase that oh, you're killing me with that you know you're the way you say grand you know it's and you're like I am being myself and this is it's an element of wow my money's worth an awful lot in this in this place you know it's that kind of it's that kind of feeling that whatever you have just at that moment they 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 really like so you know it was a union job so it was 16 dollars an hour and i went on a i went on a train around america at the for the last two weeks you get an amtrak train for 300 dollars and you could i did six thousand miles on the train for three hundred dollars, because did you get off it at all. I got off it in in the in one of the places. Uh, I got off was pertinent to this song. I got off in New Orleans. I had I had four nights in New Orleans, and a friend of mine flew down, and he hired a car. We drove around the the swamps, and we didn't even do much touring. But does you're either in New Orleans or you're not. It's yeah. a, such a singular place. We went on a little on a tour. There was three of us in the car, and we're coming back. The sun sun is setting. The levee is on our left-hand side. I mean, the whole idea that the river is higher than you yeah. is so extraordinary. That feeling. You get that feeling as well if you're in Amsterdam and you cycle out along the polders and you go, oh, yeah. the sea is higher than the bit. The sea, the actual sea is higher than... And there's houses and they yeah. seem not to be worried. 
And so coming back in in the car, sun, sun behind us, this song, Angel of the Morning, the P.P. Arnold version is playing uh, on the on the radio and it's the most American yeah. thing uh, I've had. It's amazing. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Angel of the Morning, P.P. Arnold, the choice of today's guest, comedian Colm O'Regan. And the, that American thing for youngsters... So special in a way, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. I I kind of joked that it it it, allow, it allows a generation generations of young Irish people to lie about how much sex they've had. <laughs> it's the extreme equivalent of oh, you wouldn't know them. They go to a different school. Like, you know? um, but also, there you get a job there that there's no way you're qualified for. Like yeah. depending on contacts, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, there was a friend in college was talking about somebody he knew who was like not the the brightest uh, or certainly not apparent that he was but he got a job from the cousin and when he came back from America they asked him what was he doing he was managing an airfield <laughs> <laughs> and it was that it was that idea that you could it was you could get yeah, yeah. jobs that that in no way like you'd swiftly be promoted <laughs> like and um, and then you come back and you don't earn that salary again for yeah. another 15 years <laughs> and depending on how you timed it with the recession maybe yeah. still haven't you know um, you weren't tempted to stay there were you I was very much in love with the idea of the, you know, I was reading great American novels while I was there. And New York is such a city for thinking that you are the star of your own TV show. And I've been back there a few times doing gigs in uh, at the New York Irish Centre and Kansas City Irish Centre and a few other places. Um, But now I don't feel the same way about it. It just feels like a different country that need that, that. You know, it's not as beguiling, yeah. you know. And also, I have small children. I don't... I remember I, I I used to do warm-up gigs for the recordings of Mrs. Brown's Boys when they used to record in Glasgow. Yeah. And What uh, would you talk about there? Oh, it's the toughest gig I've ever done because the thing would take three hours and you'd have to try and keep the audience engaged. Oh. And then somebody would say, cut, we're ready to start again. And you'd be praying nobody would mess up their lines and all oh, that. Cool. I remember Brendan was very... Like, he's really good at giving advice without... Sometimes it's hard to take advice from somebody more successful because yeah, you're yeah. like, oh, well, you would... But he manages to give useful advice sparingly. And I remember him saying, like, if you want to do America, you have to understand you have to go there for a long time and really want to, do you know what I mean? Yeah, to yeah. stay there that, and if you have a small children or anything like that. And it was useful bit of advice um, because you either, like when it's that distance, you either do it or you don't, you yeah. know, go hard or go home kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and yeah. I wasn't, I, 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 I like living here too much. Yeah. I've never had an emigratory urge. I've always, apart from the moment, I've always had enough work, you know, yeah. but I am still, there's still elements of it that I was intoxicated with, but it's just, it just feels a little bit different mm. now. And and that l- lack of work now for everybody in the arts world is is so tough. Yeah, isn't it? I certainly am not uh, whining about myself because no. you know you kind of got this. This is my the, the saddest thing for me. Um, like I'm hoping things will eventually pick up. That's kind yeah. of what savings are for. And and also you know, like the saddest thing is that laughter, like live laughter, which is you you sit next to somebody in a crowded comedy club. They start laughing. The, the not even the sound of them laughing, but yeah. the motion of them. They're a stranger, you know, oscillating next to you yeah. with laughter, and you start laughing, and it spreads. You know, yeah. and laughter is a bloody vector. Like, do you know what I mean? Like that, that the idea of sh- expelling great lungfuls of air out. Like yeah. it's just so unnatural. It's like suddenly finding that you've been 
you know, what do you do? I sell spuds. Do you know spuds are poisonous? Like, you know, so it's... so I, it's, I totally get... I, I mean, I was watching them. The Graham Norton show, I saw them doing Zoom calls with no audience and I felt it lacked, it missed... Yeah, the, the group. It and it's a testament to how good he is that it's it's still got yeah, something out yeah. of it. And a huge amount is about the host. We there are different there are different models. We've done different um we've done different things. So for example, myself and another guy, Julian Clancy, have run Dublin Story Slam, which is a storytelling night. And it's been every month in the Sugar Club for the last few years. Obviously can't happen now, but we've we've made it a Zoom uh, night, yeah, and it's on paper. It doesn't sound like we'd replicate it, but we've created a different type of fun in that, you know, we'll turn off all the mics so that everybody can tell their story. You know, the three storytellers can tell their story without hearing anything. But then we turn on all we turn on all the mics then for everybody to applaud, and then suddenly you're going around the houses yeah, yeah. on Zoom, and that creates a different community. People are all brought together. You have a glimpse of. You can hear people muttering to each other, are the mics on? Are they, are they on? And then, so it's a different, um, it has a different dynamic, different yeah. dynamic. Straight stand up on Zoom. You know, it's like the difference between meat, yeah. if we want meat and corn. There comes a time where you go, I just like, like a ch- I'll just have broccoli, to be honest, because <laughs> I can't do the substitute thing. It depends. It depends on how the interaction is with the audience. If there's any kind of chatting that you can see in text and you yeah. can feed off that. Yeah. then it can work. But it's just, it's not the same scale. And obviously you're not, the ticket, the ticketing's different. Sure. Yeah. And in the meantime, you have Anne Devine to keep you, yeah, keep you going. Exactly. This is my, it's, it's bittersweet bringing out a book when you can't go to festivals and meet people and sign it for people in yeah. person and maybe do readings. But I launched it on Zoom and there was 50 people at it and I did a reading and they, it was nice. That's as many would have gone to the real thing. Yeah. It was just that they brought their own wine. And, <laughs> but, but the nice thing is it's my way of bringing, making people laugh yeah. remotely, bringing it to them. And hopefully uh, I won't hear them laughing. Hopefully they will laugh. <laughs> but I'm assuming just because I haven't heard them, they haven't laughed. And uh, so, that, so it's nice that it's a little bit of light relief in a time when it's still uncertain. She's a lonely woman. Just briefly, mm. the story without spoiling you. She's a, she's a lonely woman. Well, mm. she is, uh, she's a woman who has, at various times, children have left and come back. In in this instance, she's, the house is fuller than she might have bargained for because her mother's had a fall, the first fall. And for anybody with relatives over a certain age, there is a before the first fall and after the first fall where things changed. have subtly yeah. changed. Mm. And, and not sometimes not so subtly. And you dread that first fall because it's, you know, you're always like, oh, thank God, no, there, there's no yeah. falls. Um, but then there is a fall and then suddenly a different plan swings into place. So she's minding her mother, uh, minding a niece uh, because her sister is on a yoga retreat in, in Goa. And meantime, the post office <laughs> is in danger of closing down. So she gets involved in the protests to save the post office. But in the midst of that, finds herself with some very uneasy Bedfellows, which is something I'm always fascinated by, the idea that lots of people on a, diff- on a particular cause might want one thing in common, but they have lots they disagree about. Yeah. And that's sometimes some part of the book is part of that Great. as well. Well, I wish you luck with that. We come to our final musical choice, personal choice, obviously. Called yes, Tessabin. yeah, yeah. Uh, very personal. It's one of those ones where the meaning of the song increased once certain weeks had passed. And by that, I mean... The day it's the it was playing on the radio 
the day, possibly the hour I found out I was going to become a father for the first time. Mm. And you don't you don't ascribe that meaning to it until everything you pass certain stages. Yeah. And it was so then it started to resonate. And also there's a, a line in it where so it's Bell and Sebastian. And there's a line in it where the lead singer talking about his partner says, now I look at you, you're a mother of two. And my wife is now a mother of yeah. two. So it, you kind of the human capacity for cheesiness knows nobody. <laughs> you know, even though the song is about something completely different, we latch onto lines yeah, yeah. that that just resonate with us. And so it's Nobody's Empire by Bell and Sebastian, and it will always have that place as it, it takes me back to a particular Saturday in early 2015, where uh, life was about to change forever. It's a lovely memory to have, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, I... It's always that danger with those memories that somebody would say, that song didn't, <laughs> that song wasn't released until 2017, like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I, I'm fairly sure, I'm fairly sure that the, the dates line up. You're weakening it. Like, uh, <laughs> Colin Regan, lovely chatting with you, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for joining us. And we're going to play out with Colin's final choice, Bell and Sebastian, Nobody's Empire. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.